Join us for PR Safari, a podcast by Center for Public Relations. PR Safari, your ultimate guide to navigate the complex PR landscape in Africa. Find us at www.cpr.africa. Hello, my name is Chris Wangalua. Our guest and guide in this episode is Gloria Lihemo. Gloria is a social and behavior change specialist at UNICEF headquarters. Before that, she was working with UNICEF's regional office for South Asia, Kathmandu, Nepal, covering eight countries including Kenya and working on risk communication and community engagement for the COVID-19 response. Prior to that, she was working with UNICEF in Pakistan doing social and behavior change and knowledge management for a water and sanitation program. She has worked at the United Nations with UNDP in Kenya covering the Somali program. She has also worked in the DRC with an NGO called Medea. She holds a Master of Arts in International Development and Cooperation from France and is currently pursuing a Behavioral Science Master's degree at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I was struck by the fact that you are a behavior change specialist. And in communication, there are three main things that people deal with information, attitude change, and behavior change. And so when you look at how people run campaigns all over the world, even in Africa and Kenya, behavior change almost seems like something people do, but I feel they never get to hack it. And that is why you are here. Help us understand what social behavior change really means. Thanks, Chris. I think one of the things, and you've just, you've you've hit the nail on the head immediately, is that behavior change is a very long-term um, kind of outcome. And so it's very difficult for us, for starters, to be able to demonstrate that we've actually been able to effect that kind of change. So that's why a lot of the initiatives, a lot of the campaigns that are geared towards behavior change fail, it's because we don't give it enough time to be able to see that change to fruition. And then also because it's also multifaceted and very dynamic, very context specific, and you need to have very tailor specific sort of like evidence to inform the kind of change that you want to affect. And then a behavior usually has a series of other behaviors within the whole sort of like context of the behavior itself. So you have to also design it in a way where you try and change those individual behaviors with a view to having the overarching outcome you want to have. What are those others? Give us an example, maybe. You can use UNICEF if you like. So just a good example is I work on vaccination acceptance. And vaccine acceptance is a series of a lot of other components within it. So there's a whole issue of understanding people's confidence towards vaccination, understanding what people think and feel about vaccination, understanding what their motivations are to get vaccinated, understanding the context within which that whole decision-making for vaccination takes place. Things like access to vaccination. So while the outcome is getting people to move from not being vaccinated to being vaccinated, you have to understand that whole spectrum of how that decision-making happens. So from understanding their thoughts and feelings, motivations, and other contextual issues. So that's why I'm saying it's very dynamic, multifaceted, and a complex issue. And so you have to look at the underlying drivers and barriers as well as the enablers for a specific behavior before you even start designing an intervention to try and help people to change their behaviors. That study alone of getting to understand the behaviors and what makes them do what they do almost makes you want to deal with person 
to person. You have to understand individual behaviors to be able to understand how those impact on the overarching environment. So when you look at behavior change, we usually look at the nexus between the individual perceptions. So that's where we do attitudes and perception surveys. But we also do a lot of experimentation and diagnosing the wider context, looking at things like social norms how people interact with other people within the network and how the other people in the network influence that person's decision-making, for example. Looking at what contextual factors affect that whole decision-making process. So it's not impossible, but it just takes using very tailored, specific kind of interventions from understanding what those barriers are, both from an individual perspective, from an interpersonal perspective, from the environment and society-wide perspectives to be able to influence your understanding of what, what people's concerns are and what the enablers are and then you use that information to design your strategy and the strategy could end up being like a mass communication strategy for example yes yeah if it's for example an issue that is affecting a particular group of people and those people respond to a certain media that is a mass media then your intervention will have to be like a media-based campaign yes but if it's something that necessitates an interpersonal communication then of course, you need to adjust your strategy accordingly. And sometimes the strategy could be different within different demographics within a population. Because of course, people are, are not homogeneous. So you might find that they are gender-specific issues that need to be dealt with. And the way the ecosystem for information for women, for example, might not necessarily be the same for men. Or yeah, for, of yeah, children. children. Yes. Yeah. So you need to have very tailored strategies. And the best way for you to get to that point where you design your strategy is to to get the evidence. So a lot of research is important and it's both online research, it's offline research, it's community-based research just to understand what kind of behavioral insights inform people's decision making and then using that information to design your strategy and again even while we're doing the strategy it can be a mass strategy for example at the onset of a pandemic when something like a pandemic like COVID-19 happens your go-to strategy is a mass media campaign because you want to get the information out there as quickly as possible to the farthest corner to the farthest corner possible so then a mass media campaign does make sense as long as we know as professionals that 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 is not the default and only approach to reaching our audiences. So, of course, you need a mix of communication tools and approaches, of which mass media could be one. And then, of course, depending on the ecosystem of how your target audience accesses information, then you have different outreach mechanisms to reach them, whether it's online or... In our case, in Africa, village elders and all that. Local influencers are one of the key ways of reaching people because they're trusted sources, you know. One thing we've learned through the pandemic is just the importance of trusted sources. So whether it's the village elders, religious leaders, women who are like peer-to-peer group women leaders, that is a crucial, crucial source of getting information to people because they are trusted. And then, of course, you have to work with those people to co-create the content as well so that they're not just the trusted sources, but the information that they're also providing is trustworthy. Co-creation is becoming a big thing now, right? (laughs) It was the word definitely for 2022 is co-creating both the diagnosis of understanding the barriers and then co-creating the solutions as well. Of course, the case that we deal with in Africa a lot is budget. And ideal for me, I've always believed it's got to be different strategies. There's no way you're communicating the same thing, best again on evidence, the same thing to women as men or children. How do you 
manage such a grand strategy with a limited budget? It's true that you do need a significant amount of budget to be able to do a multi-tailored strategy. But sometimes all you need as well is, like for example now, the proliferation of, of social media, for example, and online engagement. So it's just a question of how you tap into that and be able to use that efficiently. And again, just linking back to what I was saying earlier about trusted sources. I mean, influencers could have such massive reach, for example. So if you get them on board as champions and not necessarily having to pay them a massive budget. That's where I was coming. (laughs) (laughs) Although to give a balanced perspective, we don't want to also use influencers without paying them accordingly for what they deserve. But I work in the international development sphere, and so most of the work is about creating public goods that communities should benefit from. So I think everyone should contribute, whether it's influencers and governments. When we have a humanitarian crisis, for example, it's the government's accountability to make sure the right communities are reached, and that involves bringing all the right people to the table, so whether it's the influencers, the private sector, to contribute. So I think one of the ways through which we can deal with the whole budget issue is For us as communicators, first of all, to be able to make a very compelling case for governments, for example, to understand the need to invest in in good communications that, that could actually have an impact. And then also use our communications ability to convene and bring the right people to the table, bring the right kind of private sector to the table, bring the influencers bring everyone who needs to be politicians, who needs to be brought to the table, and then work together towards achieving a good overarching sort of like communication strategy. Would you give us one of the most successful behavior change campaigns you've run? And of course, we'll ask for a failed one. It's all lessons learned. I think for me, one of the communications that I have been engaged with that I thought was really successful outside of the content was um, I mentioned earlier that I started my career with UNICEF, with the UNICEF Pakistan office. And so I was involved in an initiative around menstrual hygiene management. And that's just because in that part of the world, there's some taboos and cultural issues around menstruation, which means that there's a culture of silence around speaking about it, So, which means girls don't get the right information that they need about how to manage it. So because it's considered to be such a taboo subject, what we did there was we conducted the studies to just understand what those barriers were to like good menstrual management for girls. And we understood that it wasn't like so much a taboo per se. Even parents wanted to be able to give that information to the kids, but just because there sort of like wasn't that kind of a platform where they could openly um, speak and girls could not ask questions. And there's also this other thing that came up in the study was that people had this misconception that in the Quran, for example, that it was considered to be taboo, which was actually not the case. So we did engage some influencers, including Islamic scholars who are even male, and they helped us to come up with these fatwas or directives that clarified the issue that it wasn't actually really a taboo subject even in the Quran, and it was open. And so just having that open dialogue between the religious scholars and young girls was able to really help us have these girls come up and speak up and ask questions about how to manage their menstruation. And we saw a significant impact in that initiative just in terms of the kind of girls who were open to like speaking up and educating others about menstruation. So that's one one of the examples that I have had in my career that I thought we really shifted the middle in terms of giving girls access to information, which was really just a pertinent skill for them in terms of dealing with the issue around menstrual hygiene. If you're doing a study, you're doing a baseline, you probably have a control site, an experimental site. Probably not everybody does that. What I'm wondering is when you're doing your baseline, I'm assuming you had a significant number that you found out you needed to convert. 
if you go back and look at the numbers, did it ever come to an end? Is it ongoing? How does it look like now? Is it true that some of these things will never end so that one day UNICEF can close? <laughs> I mean, in an ideal world, we should be able to solve all the issues so that we no longer need to have um, international organizations coming to help solve issues. But in that particular example, as you would imagine, of course, that's a very sensitive, very personal issue. So it doesn't lend itself well for doing something like a randomized control trial per se. But what we did in terms of the studies was focus group discussions within very safe spaces and where the girls could speak openly because First of all, even the people who were conducting the studies were women from the community who were trusted by the girls. So that was more qualitative kind of research rather than quantitative. And we did have a baseline at the beginning because we did have surveys just to try and understand from the girls what... It was more a perception study to understand what their perceptions and attitudes are towards menstruation. So we did that as a baseline. And then after we did the study and then we had these communications activities, including using sports champions who are females as ambassadors. And then, like I mentioned, the Islamic scholars as well. And then just doing education awareness programs within the schools themselves. And at the end of that program, we did an endline survey with some of the same girls as well as others. And we did see a significant increase in terms of even just their confidence to, to speak about the issue and, and their confidence and awareness about issues around menstruation. So I do believe these kinds of initiatives could have an impact and we're able to shift the needle in some significant issues. That's just one example. And any failures? I mean, of course, they are, they are failures. They're initiatives that we do start and that we never see to fruition, mostly because in the international development sector, for example, of course, the bulk of our funding is project-based. And like I said earlier, behavior change is a very long-term kind of initiative. So sometimes you do get funding to run a project from point A to point B, and then the funding runs out before you've actually yes. gotten to the point where you can see the impact. So I wouldn't go as far as to say that they've failed per se, but we just, we're not able to see them through because of challenges such as funding. We had a guest who we shot a very interesting question, and the question was, is it possible to run these campaigns without funding? Yes and no. There are so many initiatives that are not funded by anyone that still have a lot of impact. I don't know if you've heard about the concept of community-led total sanitation programs. So a lot of the water sanitation programs across the globe, including here in Kenya, use this approach of community-led total sanitation to mobilize the community towards improving their sanitation status within their own community, and usually with, with no external funding. The community just comes together, they pull whatever money they have together, and then they work together to help each other construct toilets, for example, and they do awareness around that. And also, like, maybe put the money together, construct a borehole, and then they even get, like, a local plumber to be trained to be able to maintain those so that they're, like, they don't become dilapidated. But a lot of those initiatives are usually very community-led and with little to no funding. And that's how you ensure sustainability, because the community does feel ownership of the initiative and they want to continue to contribute because they know it's their blood, sweat, and tears that has seen it through. So for me, in fact, if anything... I look forward to a world where here in Kenya and in other parts of Africa where our initiatives are self-driven like that. Speaking of which, sustainability. Mm-hmm. You've run a campaign, the donors have pumped in money, and then it comes to an end. People go away wherever they needed to go. How do you sustain? <laughs> That's the age-old question, yeah. I mean, of course, from the onset of an initiative, you have to build in the sustainability. From the very beginning, you have to see how the program will sustain past the project phase. 
if you're going to put an infrastructure in place, there has to be someone who has the skill to maintain it for the long haul. And then, of course, you also want to make sure that the ownership from the community is there. That's how you ensure sustainability, because if people buy into the initiative, even after the project has dried up, people will make sure that they see it through and continue to contribute towards sustaining it. How do you separate attitude change and behavior change? Um, I would say... Attitude change is part of the wider social and behavior change sort of like spectrum. Understanding people's attitudes is just one aspect of behavior change. One thing I like to make a point of, and it's something that we've done for a long time, is that we put so much focus on the on the individual sort of like ability to 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 change. But it goes it goes beyond that. So that's why we spend a lot of time trying to understand the attitudes that inform the change. But that's just one aspect. In most interventions, we find that people actually are interested in changing and they do want to change. They just don't do it because either they're busy doing other things or there's some other things that are blocking them from getting there. And so attitude change is just one aspect. A very key component that we need to add to understanding the attitude change is also understanding the context within which that behavior is happening as well. And so that's why we look at things like what kind of access issues are impeding people from actually effecting the, the change. Sometimes there are even policy issues that make it almost impossible for people to effect the kind of change that they want to. So going back to your question, attitude change is just it's just one element of the full spectrum of of social and behavior change. What is the defining factor around behavior change, social behavior change as a communications? It's evidence-based communications. It's ensuring that whatever communications are putting out there, whether it's mass communication, whether it's interpersonal communication, whether it's outreach, whether it's advocacy, it has to be informed by evidence. We have to, first of all, understand the reason for why we are communicating to begin with and just trying to be able to get to the bottom of of what we want our communication to address. And that's where I think behavior change comes into play. It's that aspect of building in evidence into the whole process of how we communicate. And and in the end, our communication is more effective if it's if it is actually informed by evidence. And by evidence, I mean both ways, like understanding what the issues are. And even after we have gone ahead and done the intervention, coming back and having that discussion with the people we are working with and closing that feedback loop, coming back and saying, okay, this is where we did well. This is where we were not able to do well enough. And again, co-create solutions as to how you can do better. Is that co-creating now or is that co- feedback <laughs> <laughs> it could be i mean it's uh, it's it just reiterates the importance of co-creating throughout the whole cycle so it's not just at the beginning you co-create before you start while you're implementing and once you're done how did you find yourself communicating well i started my communications career at home in kenya i studied communications at daystar and then i did the usual trajectory most people do i i did a couple of internships my first one was at amref which was very enriching and so that's what formed my inclining to work in the international development sector. From there, I found myself at the UN with UNDP in Kenya covering the Somalia program at the time. And then while I was there, I noticed that the best way to sort of have the career leap I was envisioning was, of course, to go back to school and get additional competence and knowledge. And then I also noticed, like in the international development sector, having an additional language is a really, it really, really puts you in a different lever. And so I decided to go to school in France to pursue a master's degree there. Of course, I'm stuck at the point where you decided to go to France. <laughs> you decided to go to Pakistan. So France was very viable, one, because they had interesting international development programs, and also because of that opportunity of learning French. 
um, very competitive master degree program and so I applied to it. Right now you're stationed in New York. I am. We really appreciate and thank you very much for making the time. We hope to meet you again after your studies in behavioral science. Thanks for having me.